Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, June 21st, 2021. Okay, somebody help me. Is this the vernal equinox or the diurnal? What do you call... I thought it was the a long... solstice. It's the summer, summer, solstice, summer solstice? But it's the something equinox, right? Am I am I mistaken? What's uh, what's summer in Latin? Eternal? I... Obviously, none of us here are Wiccans. Okay, this so is really... This yeah, I wish my, 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 my daughter Shiri is at camp. She's really good at Latin. I could I could, I could ask her. And, but Istis. I, I think it's eternal. Anyway, um, so we could either start again, or we could just go on from this embarrassing display of of of, uh, of ignorance and, and and idiocy. Anyway, you could stage a good production of a Midsummer Night's Dream uh, tonight if you uh, if you wanted to. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, Latin scholar, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, John. Apologies to Magistra Holt. <laughs> Translator of Ovid's Metamorphoses, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, John. All and up from of, here. And, of course, assassin of Julius Caesar, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. I like it. Hi, John. Thank you very much. Um, boy, this is silly. Uh, but I'm giddy. I'm giddy because the pandemic is over. Uh, really, it's over. Uh, I know it was a Sunday, and Sunday reports are lower than other reports but uh the new york times's COVID tracker has the united states with four thousand cases uh as of yesterday and i think it was uh six thousand the day before i keep telling anthony fauci said if the caseload goes below ten thousand a day the pandemic is over um and apparently, since you're not allowed to criticize him, because to criticize him is to be anti-science, according to Fauci in an interview with Axios, I will not criticize him today. I'm citing him as an expert because I believe in science. and I Well, we've been misquoting science. him, actually. We've been misquoting him. So he did say that 10,000 mark, right? But he also said he qualifies that of late with and probably much lower than that. <laughs> okay, well, 4,000 is much lower than 10,000. I think we can agree. I believe not that, you know, I want to show that my math is as good as my Latin. I believe it is 60% lower <laughs> than 10,000, 4,000. Um, and, uh, and as Noah said, in that incomprehensible 14-day change chart uh, that the New York Times says, it's a, the 14-day change is 14%. If, in fact, I don't even know what that means. Does that mean it's 14 days from the previous Sunday, or does it mean 14, the average of the previous 14 days, and then you do some average, and therefore the average is lower? I've never been able to figure it out, and the number makes no sense anyway. But it, but it, but uh, but as Noah, you pointed out, it was only 14% lower, and it's at 4,000. So, in other words, the trend line is not only does this mean that, the, that we're, you know, in absolute terms beyond the pandemic, but the trend line, uh, the percentage trend line is slowing down simply because there's nowhere for it to go. Once you start getting under in these lower numbers, the decline in the number of cases is going to shrink in aggregate percentage terms in terms of the decline simply because there's going to be less and less and less of it unless by tomorrow nobody in America is getting COVID whatsoever. Also, please note that almost everybody who is testing now in my estimation, is almost certainly testing because they want to go somewhere, do something that requires a test. People aren't just like, oh, I think I have COVID. I think I'll go get a test. You know why? Because nobody's getting COVID. So they only do it because they have to. So it's travelers, probably, like 80% of them. Or some people like, and my wife works in show business, if you need to go on a set or do something like that, they now have sort of standard COVID testing. Um just simply to like walk through the door. So no one's getting it. No one's gotten it. No one has cases. Okay. So let's talk about our friend Harry Enten. Our friend Harry Enten has a good piece at CNN uh, in which he points out that according to all relevant data that we can see, uh, the people, liberals, uh, it's conservatives who are going out 
and liberals continue to act as though they are living through a pandemic. Analysis, headline on Harry's piece. Republicans are going out far more than vaccinated. Vaccinated Republicans are going out far more than vaccinated Democrats. Um, Can we break this down? So basically, doesn't this suggest that vaccinated Democrats actually like living under the COVID regime? Or is it that they're too scared to get out of the COVID regime? Or is it a combination of the two? Yeah, those two things aren't aren't mutually exclusive, I I don't think. Um, Probably a significant amount of overlap there. Anxiety, social anxiety, general anxiety, health anxiety, and also you know, political anxiety. It's all the same, all the same anxiety. But I think, I think there's also, there's also a, a subgroup of, of the people who want to see permanent pandemic restrictions in place who really enjoy telling other people what to do and really enjoy feeling they're on the moral high ground when they do it, which they were when during the pandemic, we didn't have vaccines and people walked around without masks and refused to obey any sort of public health guidelines. You know, the, then they were on the moral high ground. They could they could feel really good about themselves. Now the 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 burden of proof has shifted. <laughs> the the circumstances have shifted, and now they just want they're going around scolding people. And I think that it's hard, it, particularly in cities that are deep blue like my own. People still don't want to give up their virtue signaling mask wearing, even though even when they're when they're uh, fully vaccinated and they want to continue to inspire a little bit of fear and doubt in people's minds about the effectiveness of vaccines by constantly talking about it's the Delta variant now. Right. That's the one I heard a lot about from people this weekend. Delta variant, Delta variant. So they enjoy that. There's a there's a power. There's a psychological satisfaction in feeling oneself to be morally superior and that you can literally demonstrate it with a mask on your face in some parts of this country. So, you know, we've said several times um, that progressives, um, ironically, have a very hard time recognizing progress, right? It's, uh, they, this, this usually applies to things like, you know... Um, um, the environment. It, 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 the, well, the environment or equality before the law or, you know, um, civil rights, wh- whatever it may be. And it's interesting that it clearly in this case seems to extend to something like science, technology, and the pandemic. I mean, that is exactly um, where, where we're at. We have made extraordinary progress uh, on this, um, and, but their comfort zone is, as Christine says, to sort of be able to have the issue, to be able to, to continue to say what more needs to be done. See, I, this, is, this is where I'm not sure I like the idea that what's going on is virtue signaling because virtue signaling itself almost has a performative external knowing quality. And I I don't think people are doing this because they are signaling exactly or, or consciously signaling. They are, they're doing it because they think it's virtuous, not because they're signaling and this to me has a couple of relatively profound implications. One of which is that we have lived almost my entire life uh, in an America in which progressive or sort of like mainstream liberal opinion has been that liberation from rules or old rules or uh, calcified rules or something um, is part of the forward progress that needs to be made for people to be their best selves. And one of the things that has made me a conservative is that I, uh, though I myself chafe at, you know, sort of bureaucratic, nonsensical rules like everybody else, if you're, you know, going to the, you know, the classic thing is the DMV or the post office or something like that, where you follow some kind of weird protocol that just seems to be there for the benefit uh, of of making life as easy as possible for the people who work there and as hard as possible for you as a person who is forced to go through the system. Nonetheless, I believe in order. I believe in rules. I think people need to live in rules and, and, and that rules are good, that rules provide us with a common boundary so that we don't all, you know, kill each other, whatever. And it turns out that one of the things that COVID may have demonstrated, at least in terms of liberal culture, is that liberals, progressives, everybody like that, they'll seize on anything 
to have a rule. Uh, we've all been living, it's sort of like, um, you know, uh, uh, babies. And now I'm, of course, going up on the word, uh, swaddling a baby. That babies uh, love to be swaddled because they like the feeling of comfort that a swaddle provides. And there was something swaddling about COVID lockdown culture. And people responded to it, particularly in places where uh, their own ideology and their own temperament has led them to believe that you are not supposed to say men are, and women are men. This is how people, you know, you can be anything you want to be. You can choose to be anything you want to be. Uh, you're not burdened. Biology isn't uh, isn't a limit. And, you know, history, uh, ancestral practice human tradition, all these things are unnecessary limits on your freedom. And this drives people crazy. And suddenly it was like, okay, here are the rules. You're not supposed to go outside. You're not supposed to go to a beat. You're supposed to wear a mask. Maybe you should wear two. You're supposed to stand six feet apart from everybody. Like I'm going to show I'm an A student. I'm going to live within these rules. And there was something, as it turned out, extremely comforting in the red state's about following those rules, and suddenly it's like, you know what? You don't have to follow the rules anymore. It's like you're you were sick. You were taking amoxicillin. You you know you're no longer sick. You don't have to take the amoxicillin. And people are still desperately taking the amoxicillin. You're supposed to supposed to stop when you feel better. When your throat stops hurting, you don't have strep throat anymore. And here we are. And you're not. And no one is living. The, not no one, but, you know, uh, Andy Kessler has a piece in the Wall Street Journal this morning about how he went to a Whole Foods in Los Angeles and he counted, he, there were, he counted 50 people, 40, him, he was one and there were 49 other people in this, according to him, everybody else was wearing a mask except him in Los Angeles where they had lifted all internal mask rules. People like the rules. They but, want rules. I, <clears throat> I just want to make a point without overstating it because it could be you, one could get carried away with this. But John, might there not be something to the fact that um, conservatives tend to already live by sets of rules that are not issued by the government? Um, not 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 exclusively conservatives, but it is more likely they are more likely to be religious. They are more likely to be involved <clears throat> in traditions and have families. That that require them to already live by a set of rules, so that 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 need is satisfied among conservatives. More, it's more likely to be satisfied among conservatives already. Uh, among liberals, they um, they they welcome the rules because they're less likely to have had them as a part of their life. I think that's. I mean, if I'm right, you're right. I mean, you're more right than I'm even right. Like, I think that's a very that's a, a very deep. Uh, analysis that this uh, when the rules and uh, for people who who do live by rules you know I mean I keep kosher you know stuff like you know for people who do live by rules and the rules are often onerous to some extent unnecessary rules bureaucratically imposed rules or rules that are imposed from the outside by people who do whose authority is asserted rather than um, is just asserted as a matter of uh, – that we don't accept as a matter of democratic practice, that they have that authority. That's not why we vote them in or that's not why we – you know, it's the classic thing about Fauci or any of these guys is that they work for us. We don't work for Anthony Fauci. He does not make our rules. But this he is, is this a, is okay. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say this. This is actually a really important point that that I think as we come out of the pandemic, we have to spend some time thinking about because the rule makers themselves were often in positions where their accountability to the public, which had to comply with their rules, was absent entirely. There were so many layers of either bureaucracy or or um, uh, other power brokers between them and us that it. They actually, over time, as as their power uh, continued throughout the pandemic, they became very annoyed when people didn't instantly comply. Right? There was I, I have to tell my weird little story. This this Sunday, I went. I took one of my sons to the farmers market. It's an outdoor market. Um, it, it, we went early before it was too crowded. We we're both fully vaccinated. We arrive there, and a and a woman comes racing up and says, "You have to wear a mask now." 
we're outdoors, fully vaccinated. And so I assume she just, and the city has list, lifted those mask mandates for the vaccinated. And I said, oh, well, it's fine. We're fully vaccinated. No, our policy is you have to wear a mask. So I was, I was genuinely confused. I said, well, I don't understand the policy. Um, and she just kept waving the mask at me and yelling. And I'm thinking she, she was angry that I didn't immediately comply. And I'm looking around, everyone's wearing a mask outdoors. Most of these people in DC are probably fully vaccinated at this point. So I, I took the mask and I walked over to the first vendor who was unmasked. And she said, here's what's going on. They have a rule that the first hour of the market is for high risk individuals. So you have to wear a mask if you come. I was like, oh, thank you. That's your policy. I get it. Fine. Thanks for explaining it to me. But she said, please write to the farmer's market that runs that, you know, the, that oversees this and tell them that you find this ridiculous because we all hate it. They won't listen to us. Everybody just, you know, willingly complies. And, you know, it, it seems bizarre at this point. But the rulemaking, like this was like probably a 21 year old uh, young woman who'd been badly trained, but she was enraged that her her little bit of power forcing masks on people <laughs> had been even politely questioned. And I feel like there was in that moment uh, kind of the sense that a lot of us have had throughout this pandemic of our of our dealings with public health officials. Well, it's the hall monitor problem, right? It's like yes. the, it's like the high school hall monitor problem where somebody, some kid gets the authority is granted the authority by the whatever to uh, mo- to watch other kids and like gets drunk with power because he's been empowered to sort of tell somebody who is maybe older, maybe bigger, maybe more popular, whatever, that they're not behaving right. And, and it is a classic, I don't know, I don't know if there are like PhD theses, behavioral psychology PhD theses on these, but it is a... Uh, it is a real thing. I mean, I, I remember a, a, a story going back, I don't know, close to 40 years where uh, my friend Todd Lindbergh and I were on the Beltway in Washington, uh, right around where the Mormon Temple is for you Washington list. And suddenly traffic comes to a halt. And we're just at the Georgia Avenue exit. Like we are like, a hundred feet from the Georgia Avenue exit in, I think it was my car, whatever, and comes to an exit and I'm in the right lane. And so I pull off into the shoulder so that I can exit because I figure something's gone on. There's an accident there. You know, there was a a bad pileup. So I'm going to get off the high and I'm right at the exit. So as I pull off, uh, there is a highway patrol, a highway patrol woman or whatever who is the one who has, who was sort of standing there having stopped the traffic. And she violently gestures that we are to stop. And so I sort of pull, again, I don't remember if it was me or if it was Todd, and I sort of pull over and roll down the window or something, or Todd rolls down the window. And she says, don't you see what I'm doing? Don't you see that I've shut down the beltway? <laughs> and it was a weird, like one of those kind of signature moments. It's like, oh my God, I've shut, I've shut down the Washington beltway. And these two pitchers in this Ford Escort are, are, are breaking my rule. <laughs> You know, if everyone did what they're going to do, then everyone's just going to get off. And then my, the amazing thing that I just did, shutting down the major artery of traffic in the Washington, D.C. area will have been invalidated by all of this freedom, you know. And so I, it, it remains a sort of suggestive moment to me about sort of like the the psychology of what can happen in these weird circumstances, I'm sure she's a perfectly decent person. She was a public servant, you know, whatever, something had happened. She wired it. You know, they told her, okay, we're, we need all traffic to stop because we have to clear whatever happened in the road. But this was her, she, this was her thing. She had stopped the beltway and we were ruining for her. Somehow. It's her use of the word I though, right? Yes. Like it's I've shut down the beltway. If you're a public servant or a public health professional or whatnot, it should always be the royal we. It's like we are doing something as a community of experts to help you, not I. Uh, and this is actually, I think, what always graded on me about Fauci. He used I a lot. 
I've said this, I've done that, I'm doing this. He should be using we because it's a community of experts who might and should disagree on some of the particulars. Well, look, just to play devil's advocate here, which, you know, that's the, the important role. Somebody has to do that, right? We all have somebody who has to do that. So just to do it. Um, I don't know if we should be so dismissive of the prospect of virtue signaling. I hate that term, but it's the one that describes this kind of behavior that we're talking about here. This is polling, and polling has all the same problems with Democrats as it has You're with talking about Harry Ent- You're talking about Harry Enten's Correct. article the, the on article Republicans and, going and, out and Democrats not going out. Which is predicated on self-described um, behavior patterns. And we know Republicans game polling because when they're asked a question that is deliberately p- provocative, they give a deliber- deliberately provocative response. Um, why isn't the same phenomenon evident here? Why wouldn't Democrats say that the, what they think the pollster wants to hear from them, which is that, no, I'm not going out to a restaurant, even though they're going out tonight and went out last night. But the question is, why is that virtuous? Why do they see that as virtuous? That's See, you're right. You're absolutely right. They may be lying or misrepresenting. The question is, why do they feel that it's the right answer? Now, when Republicans say, as 30% of them did in some poll last week, that 30% of them say that they believe that, that Trump will be reinstalled as president in August. Do they actually believe it? Or is it like that question is a stand-in for whether they like Trump? And it's also a stand-in for, screw you for asking me this question. I'm going to give you the answer that is going to make you angrier. Yes. Does it mean that 30% of them believe that he's actually going to be reinstalled as president? Probably not. But, but right. But we understand this as some kind of weird proxy. That said, that's why I'm asking, why is this the proxy? Why do they think that they are supposed to say that they're not going out? Do they feel guilty about going out? I think they feel guilty about going out. That's that's the weird part. There's is no that they, they feel, feel guilty, guilty about not going out. <clears throat> but the great thing about the rules, going back to the rules that everybody experienced over the course of COVID, is that it wasn't just uh, procedural. It was meliorist. It was you're, you were saving the planet, not to mention your neighbors and your family members by observing these rules. So it, it had sort of a, a messianic component to it. I don't even think it's a messianic component. It was like good citizenship, and that's fine as far as it went. Like last summer, last fall, it was a mark of good citizenship, being a good neighbor, being a good, you know, being a person who had a role to play in doing what you could based on what evidence there was to ameliorate the 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 problems and the dangers and the threats of the pandemic that is not true any longer if anything it is it is the opposite it's like you're staying masked because you're worried about yourself which is where you start saying well what do i care so fine you wear a mask i'm vaccinated you can wear a mask whatever you want to wear a mask but it's got this weird overhang quality because this then leads businessmen to believe that they have to keep a mask mandate in their stores or they'll lose customers or they need right, to so keep a that, – that's in certain places. Obviously, there are places in the South where it's like if you wear a mask, we'll throw you out, yeah. right? right? There's well, but, we read about the, that the, stuff. But, but, the, but your yeah. point, your larger point is important here because it's that the denialism about us coming out on the other end of this pandemic and trying to return to normal has political and uh, policy implications. We saw it. We've talked about it on this podcast with regard to how Biden has rolled out some of his very sweeping legislative agendas. It, it has at the granular level, at the local and community level, it, it's just as you said, John, places will still keep mask mandates on and still scold people who shouldn't have, there is no scientific reason for them to be wearing a mask and yet they are still scolded into doing so. These, these you know, it, it has to do with who, who has power in negotiations with say reopening schools or reopening, um, you know, venues where people can go and see a baseball game or hear a concert. There is power politics involved here, but COVID, the one that really drives me absolutely batty so far this summer is COVID is an excuse for the crime increase because we, we're seeing all the, you know, the, this, this spike in violent crime in, in cities across the country. And 
policymakers who should be thinking about this in critically important terms as something that needs to be dealt with immediately can say, you know, it's really just the pandemic. It's just a blip. We'll just wait and see. Well, you, you know, people are dying as a result of that, using COVID as a cover for a lot of other other policy and power choices. So I think it is important to call it out for what it is and to push back. So, I mean, when I was with my kid, I was very polite to this woman. But, you know, th- I talked to all the vendors I bought items from and, and asked them what their beliefs were about this policy. They they almost uniformly said they thought it was a bad idea because it was driving customers away, especially in the summer where it's really onerous to wear a mask in D.C. where it's boggy. So I wrote a letter to this. You know, I got home and I talked to my son and he's like, yeah, we should we should write a letter. We should do something because if you disagree with something, you have to act on that or else nothing changes. So we did. We, you know, we wrote a little letter and who knows if they'll listen to it. But more people need to push back in that way about this kind of anti-scientific posturing. So <clears throat> there's just one point I want, I want to not forget to make about the the Harry Anton's piece about um, more vaccinated Republicans go out than more than than do vaccinated uh, Democrats. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> For years, there have been these psychological studies. Um, they are not very impressive. No one should believe them. Um, but they're always ab- about, I'm talking specifically here about the, the studies about the psychological differences between liberals and conservatives. Um, these are always put out to try to make politics into something more essential, more sort of animal, um, <clears throat> to say that conservative is really this type, looks at the whole world this type of way, and um, uh, liberal looks at the, whole, at the whole world this type of way, and the difference is, is just fundamental. It's sort of pre-politics in, in, in their human makeup. And what they always say is something like, uh, rigorous sci- uh, psychological studies demonstrate that conservatives are more likely to approach the world out of a sense of fear, with a sense of fear. They're afraid of things. They see threats everywhere, whereas liberals are open in their thinking. They approach new people, new experiences, new ideas with a kind of openness. So that really is the fundamental difference between liberals and conservatives, right? So it's this total knock. It's this total, you know, drummed up, uh, you know, fake science-y way to insult conservatives and say you're closed-minded bigots, right? Fine. Where does that now stand in light of of the the fact that um, conservatives who are vaccinated, we're not talking about anti-science, vaccinated conservatives are more likely, less afraid to go out into the world uh, and and be among other people than are liberals. Well, we should add that unvaccinated Republicans are just as likely to go out unmasked. That too. All the polling that's across the board. And I'm sure that's true. Yeah, um, that is likely true of unvaccinated Democrats as well, I'm afraid. I mean, I don't see any evidence that unvaccinated Democrats are cowering in their homes either. A lot of this is there are people who don't want to get vaccinated for whatever reason. Everybody who's listening to this podcast knows that I think that there is a not inconsequential number of people who are not getting vaccinated because they're afraid of needles and that that number could be in the tens of millions and therefore could be one of the major factors that will prevent us from reaching this, you know, mystical 70, 80% number of, of, of people being, being vaccinated. Um, as well as the continuing, you know, like, uh, horrible retailing of these, you know, wild pieces of anecdotal data about one person whose kid was vaccinated and then, and then got sick. Like, uh, the, the truth is, uh, we, something like 200 million people, I think, have gotten, a, a shot so far, more than 200 million people. If people were be, if, if there was a real serious uh, connection between um, reaction to the shot and, you know, the general population getting the shot, those numbers would be in the tens of thousands instantly. I mean, there's never been, I don't know that we can think of a time period in which 200 million people have gotten the same treatment for something except for polio or so. I mean, you know, like at once in the middle of an emergency 
it would be undeniable that there were like massive increases. This is I'm, I'm just saying this because I saw Alex Berenson was retailing one of these stories. There would be massive increases in the number of people going to emergency rooms. I mean, which is not anything that can be hidden from view. It's not happening. But because of the nature of social media, which I also want to get to as soon as I read our, our first after our first ad, because of the nature of social media, of course, an individual anecdote itself can stand in for two million, depending on how many people read it. It's like you have a story. Oh, my kid took it, and then his, he has an enlarged heart, and it's therefore because of the. A vaccination. And it's one person in America, but if 2 million people read that tweet, it's sort of like it's 2 million people. It's the number of people who read it, not the number of people who got it. And that's the, that's the bad part. Um, you know, by the way, there's, so there's a lot of talk today, uh, once again, about inflation. Uh, uh, the uh, Wall, Wall Street Journal has a piece about how the supply chain problems that are going on are, are a key signal of of inflation because if we don't have enough product obviously prices are going to go up as as consumers chase the things that they want i notice for example i need a new air conditioner and the air conditioner i want is suddenly six weeks on back order um, it, stuff like that uh, so that's an inflation signal the new york times has a story about uh, about lumber prices a dropping because they got expensive, people were doing do-it-yourself lumber projects, and now because the price went up, they stopped doing it, and now the prices are dropping, and that's a sign that inflation or that specific element that was so key to seeing the inflationary spiral go upward in the first quarter of this year is now dropping. Um, I bring this up because I want, again, to commend to you DividendCafe.com, David Bonson's daily newsletter. You get it at the end of the day in your mailbox if you sign up for it at DividendCafe.com. Produced by David Bonson of the Bonson Group, a $3 billion uh, bi-coastal management and financial services firm. And uh, David is a, a leading exponent of the theory that we are under uh, we are we are not understanding the the inflation problem correctly. He is the most eloquent. Uh, representative of this uh, opinion that the threat is deflation, not inflation. And given how confusing all of this is, it is incumbent on you if you want to protect husband and steward your own resources to be reading DividendCafe.com to get the argument that you need about why you are looking in the wrong place if you are fearing inflation in a conventional way. I'm not, I'm not endorsing this as, as, as the correct view um, but I am saying that he is the most eloquent exponent of it, and you can get it every day, and it should play a role in your understanding of what's going on. So go to DividendCafe.com, sign up, subscribe, uh, and you will see and read and be a participant in, in the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management world. And thanks to the Bonson Group for sponsoring uh, the podcast. Um our friend Brian Riedel uh, uh, did a, a noticed he was looking at Pew Research, and now I got to dig this up because, of course, I saved it somewhere and now I have to find it um, about Twitter uh, and why social media are even worse than we think that they are in terms of helping us understand America at any given moment. Um, uh, he looked at Pew Research numbers and discovered that the number of people who say uh, that they are regular Twitter users, um, they are 15 percentage points more likely to be Democrats as Republicans. And that of that 15, D plus 15, as, as, as some people call it, um, that uh, the ten percent. Okay, here it is. The ten percent of Twitter users who post ninety-two percent of all tweets. Okay, so ten percent of Twitter users post nine tenths of all the tweets that are posted on Twitter. Are D plus forty-three, which, as he says, would make Twitter America's second most liberal house district. Um. 
So uh, I immediately went on Facebook and said the wisest thing I'd ever done was to stop tweeting. I still read Twitter. I don't, I don't tweet. I stopped tweeting two years ago. Um, what I meant by that was I was reading it yesterday and I was getting annoyed by things and I started having this impulse to you know hit the reply button and say something obnoxious back to somebody who had said something. And I felt relieved that I had made this rule for myself and therefore was not going to do it. Uh, because what, what good would it do me? How, why, why would that be a good thing? What, what was I going to get out of that? A little dopamine rush, right? A little teeny bit of dopamine rush that I had you know, done something aggressive uh, in that way. Um, but if we think about this, this is a very, very, very important statistic. Uh, and it is crazy important in terms of the fact that the people who run the mainstream media are allowing this service to be their story editor and their assignment editor in a way uh, that is deepening the ideological divide and, and, and strengthening the liberal bubble that is going to get them all into an enormous amount of trouble. But there, so the silver lining, if you're conservative uh, and, and uh, looking at Twitter, I don't use Twitter, never had an account. I do, I do look at what's on there for this reason. It's like they're all having, they're all at the same party and they, they get progressively drunker throughout the evening and they start saying the things that maybe they wouldn't have said if they all had just met over lunch, right? They just start saying, well, you know, don't you think this and spinning wild theories and then they all start sharing the theories. And in a weird way, particularly if it's an elected Democratic official, uh, like say Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Cori Bush or these, these folks who use their platforms to just say whatever happens to cross their mind, then when called to account for it, or Elon Omar, uh, then when you try to call them to account, it's as if you've interrupted the party as a stranger and said, how could you say that? You don't belong there. You're not part of the group. So it's always, it's still for these people, something of a shock when an outsider says, you know, that's really not an appropriate thing to say if you're a member of Congress, or that's wildly anti-Semitic. It's a weird, that's a kind of bubble where, because, I mean, almost 100% of the of the people really active on Twitter have a singular worldview, it's, it's, it's interesting as an outsider and as someone who tends not to share their worldview to see what they really believe. They have been, it, it, it has a strangely transparent effect in that sense. Well, I think newsrooms have learned, at least in, intellectually, have learned that the feedback mechanism that they're getting from Twitter is, is not a reliable source. Now, emotionally, it provides you know, individual reporters with feedback on their work, a sense of community, particularly one that's been deracinated over the course of the pandemic. And, you know, it used to be a lot worse. We talked about briefly about um, Batya Unger-Sargon's new book, where she actually takes you on a little history lesson that I had forgotten about the ways in which newsrooms like the New York Times, for example, were optimizing their content for Twitter and were encouraging the reporters to tweet out stuff they were working on. Not that had been published, but stuff that they were talking to other people about to generate some interest and enthusiasm in this upcoming report to create a brand for themselves. That was like 2014. That's long gone. Everybody knows that's not best practice now. You know, I think we should mention here that that percentage of the most active Twitter users, that's a bubble within a bubble because most Americans aren't even on Twitter. Right. So they are completely... They're, they are they're, the the agenda is being driven by um, a minority within a minority. Um, I mean, it's funny. It would be as though we uh, neocon Jews who make up a minority within a minority within a minority within a minority. Let's just say, in some ways, believe that we were most people. It's like I mean, every everybody right. knows we shouldn't pull out of Afghanistan, <laughs> right? You know, every you know. Everybody, I mean, nobody supports, you know, Ilhan Omar, you know, like that kind of thing. And that is part of, that is uh, very much part of the problem. 
Well, but that that's an interesting point because what Twitter likes to boast about itself as a platform and its usefulness to the public conversation and the, and the public sphere is just what Noah was talking about earlier with media folks. Oh, they get feedback, right? They get a kind of public critique of their work and, and they'll, the assumption is maybe they would improve or maybe they would say, oh, look, we've made a mistake. We're correcting it. But weirdly, Twitter doesn't do that. It, it tends to circle the wagons and people double down on their mistakes and their untruths. And it hasn't had the effect for everyone now, obviously I'm, I'm making a generalization here, but it, it tends not to have that effect, even though it's transparent when people point out a flaw in, in the work of a, of a journalist, for example, or something a congressperson said, they circle the wagons and, and it, it, they actually are more entrenched in their misguided views and not less. I'm not sure. I mean, I think there, there, there are two sides to that because we talked last week about in the Heights and Lin-Manuel Miranda apologizing for not having done enough representation of Afro-Latinos in In the Heights and Rita Moreno apologizing for having said that people shouldn't say bad things about Lin-Manuel Miranda. What are you kidding me? All of that uh, was a secondary result of the popularization of these extreme, lunatic, disgusting, racialist, colorist arguments or whatever you want to call them on social media. If social media hadn't amplified them from, you know, some website that nobody ever read, uh, no apology, no, the, there would have been no issue and no apology would have been necessary or thought to be necessary to tamp down a controversy that didn't exist as a matter of actual controversy in the sense. Yeah. yeah, Okay. No, I meant, I meant like it, well, yeah, because that's all within the liberal bubble where they'll dine out on each other, you know, for, for trespassing. I I guess I should, I should have clarified that if a, if a critique comes from the right about say something, a journalist wrote, they'll circle the wagon. They'll they'll then circle the wagons around them. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Guys, um, look, uh, I just want to talk to you about Bambi, our second uh, advertiser of the day, because when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat from onboarding to terminations. They customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. And we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Um, I want to talk about a story that is out today in the New York Times because everything old is new again, to quote uh, Abe's childhood friend Peter Allen's famous <laughs> lyric. <laughs> Everything old is new again. Song you can hear in all that jazz, the Bob Fosse movie from the late 70s. Um, so there's a story in the New York Times, pretty great story actually, about um, Yekaterinburg, uh, Russia, uh, then uh, called Sredlovsk during most of the uh, time that Soviet Union was empowered, known before this story as the place where Nicholas and Alexandria and the Romanov children were lined up against a wall and shot and killed at the beginning of the Russian Revolution. Uh, There was, in 1979, uh, an anthrax outbreak that killed dozens of people and sickened hundreds of people. And the Soviets claimed that it was a naturally occurring phenomenon that had jumped from animals to humans. Sound familiar? Uh, jumping from animals to humans? Well, so I had it here, and now, of course, I've lost it, so give me a, give me a second to find it. So the article um, details how, guess what? It turns out uh, that it did not jump from animals to humans, that it was a lab leak in uh, Sverdlovsk, and that the Soviets covered it up. 
And not only, even more importantly, did the Soviets cover it up, but Western uh, experts who came to, who were invited to come to um, the Soviet Union to check on this had um, had endorsed the Soviet uh, claim, led by a, a guy named Matthew Mieselson, a Harvard biologist. Mieselson and his wife, uh, the medical anthropologist Jean uh, Guillemin, uh, according to the article, came to Yekaterinburg with other American experts for a painstaking study. They documented how uh, a northwesterly wind on April 2nd, 1978, must have scattered some anthrax spores and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay. I want to talk to you about Matthew Mieselson. Matthew Mieselson became famous in the early 1980s. In the early 1980s, there was a claim that chemical weapons had been used in Afghanistan by the Soviets against the Mujahideen and the Soviet and the rebels against the Soviets. And this, um, this uh, chemical weaponry was called Yellow Rain because apparently it fell from the sky, it was yellow in hue, it sickened and killed people. And the Wall Street Journal editorial page, uh, following along research from the CIA and the State Department, had gone very heavily into research on this yellow rain phenomenon and how the Soviets were violating chemical weapons protocols dating back to the Geneva Weapons Convention and and after World War One that this was the first if it had if it were documented it would have been the first use of chemical weaponry since mustard gas in the First World War and and the entire American scientific community went absolutely bats about how the Wall Street Journal and the and the new Reagan administration was uh, distorting science, that this was actually bee pollen, it was not a chemical weapon, and this was outrageous and unseemly. And if you look up Matthew Mieselson's name, if you go to the New York Times and search Matthew Mieselson's name, the Wall Street Journal's website doesn't really allow you to go back and read those those old editorials, which I was looking for. But you'll find two, not one, but two editorials, one in the early 80s and one in 1987, conclusively celebrating how it's now been conclusively disproved that yellow rain was was a chemical weapon and not Soviet, uh, you know, chemical warfare. Um, That is not true. Uh, We still don't know whether or not yellow rain was a real thing or not. Um, and uh, it has not been disproven. And uh, and yet what we have here is an example of the scientific community in the late 1970s and early 1980s working as a phalanx to defend a communist regime against the charge that it had that there had been a, an industrial leak from a from a facility that had killed people. I'll just read you the Wikipedia. This is still with us today. I'll just read you the Wikipedia entry from On Yellow Rain um, in the second paragraph. Although the scientific evidence conclusively showed that Yellow Rain was not a Soviet chemical or biological weapon, the U.S. government has not retracted its false allegation, <laughs> arguing that the issue has not yet been fully resolved. Um, Dr. Mieselson. Uh, moved into the spare bedroom of a friend at the CIA in 1980 to study classified intelligence, suggesting that the Soviet anthrax outbreak could have been linked to a military facility nearby. Please notice that somehow he's apparently reading classified information in the bedroom of a friend who works at the CIA. How is that not like a total breach of uh, actual security protocols? (laughs) But, But we'll put that to one side. Six years later... He wrote that the Soviet explanation of the epidemic's natural origins was, quote, plausible. The evidence the Soviets provided was consistent, he said, with the theory that people had been stricken by intestinal anthrax that originated in contaminated bone meal used as animal feed. And then in 1992, Boris Yeltsin, the president of Russia, 
acknowledged, quote, our military development was the cause, unquote, of the anthrax outbreak. So this article then quotes Matthew Mieselson as sort of saying, yeah, I guess we got it wrong. You know, it's like, oh, great. So why do I bring this? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. And there's there's one other point, because it wasn't just the officials and it wasn't just the scientists who were complicit. And this this speaks to our current discussion of the of the Wuhan lab leak and and the critique of the media's role here. Uh, The Times article has a very chilling quote, which was talking about the editor of the local newspaper uh, there uh, in the city where uh, this happened. And the New York Times and other Western papers kept calling this guy to find out what was going on. And he finally said, no one on staff, no one in this building can answer any long distance calls because we can't go off message that this is not happening. And his quote was, he who can keep a secret comes out on top. And I think that's notable in part because it's not just government officials who come out on top. It's not just the scientists aiding and abetting a cover up who come out on top if they maintain the cover up. It's also people in the media who can retain positions of power by keeping a cover up going in part because they ally themselves with the, the people who are initiating the cover-up. But that quote really just stuck out to me, given right. our current debates. Right. So I don't know about Yellow Rain. All I know is that Matthew Mieselson was celebrated for his handling of this matter. And why? For entirely political and ideological reasons that he was standing against, A, the conservative Wall Street Journal editorial page on its crazed pursuit of this story, led by an editorial writer named Bill Kuzowitz, um, and and uh, you know and the Reagan administration. So here is an editorial from the Times, September third, nineteen eighty seven, called "Yellow Rain Falls." Okay, in nineteen, uh, it there was an article in Foreign Policy. That was the magazine set up at the time to be a counterpoint to foreign affairs, a liberal counterpoint to foreign affairs. It still exists. It's now owned by the Washington Post, but whatever. In 1981, Alexander Haig, then Secretary of State, announced that the United States had physical evidence of chemical warfare in Southeast Asia. Based on interviews with refugees and the finding of of toxin in a single sample of yellow rain, the State Department accused the Soviet Union of helping allies in Southeast Asia conduct chemical warfare. At first, only one voice was raised in question by persistent inquiry. Matthew Mieselson, a Harvard biologist, developed another explanation. Yellow rain is the excrement of jungle bees. It's yellow from digested pollen grains that it rains down from swarms of bees too high to be seen. His theory turns out to be exactly right. How, how does the Times, how did the Times say this in 1987? Based on a single article in Foreign Policy. The government's own studies, still unpublished, prove that the source is bees, not bombs. Still unpublished. By the way, it's now, what is it, 34 years later? Those government studies, as Noah indicated, are still unpublished. How did the government get into so ludicrous a position, asks the New York Times in 1987. From documents obtained under the Freedom of Information Act, Mr. Mieselson and his colleagues, Julian Robertson and Jean Gelliman, began to focus on Richard Burt, then a senior State Department official. Before the first detection of toxin could be confirmed and against the advice of low-ranking officials, he pressed to release the information, writing to General Haig of, quote, our strategy for securing the maximum impact from this issue. Okay, then we're going to go along in the piece, and it's Mr. Burt, now the ambassador in Bonn, explains he wanted the story out quickly to stop the killing, quote unquote. But the bees weren't killing anyone. The credible account comes from the meticulous studies conducted by the bureaucracy. Yellow rain is bee dung. And you want to know why some of us don't trust the deep state. Uh, Go ahead. Well, I think, you know, I, I think there's also an element in this that's not entirely ideological, which is that it, it shows an example of how sometimes experts can be more easily led down the garden path than lay people. Um, you know, there's a, the, the quote that, you know, some ideas are so stupid, only an intellectual could come up with them. I think there is something analogous in the world of science. Um, which is to say that um, I think scientific experts, data collecting experts can be blinded by their faith in data and methods um, and miss larger pictures, miss all sorts of context. 
um, or not be open to the idea that there's bad inputs that that they are that they are starting with bad information. Look, I accept that, but again, going back to the time because I was in my I was in my early twenties and uh, and and I remember this vividly. That's why when I saw Matthew Mieselson's name in this article. You know, uh, because I have this sort of Jeopardy memory, you know, de- bells began to ring in my head about this. You're saying you were triggered. <laughs> I was triggered. Um, so um, this was ideological, though. The whole point was that there was a world of liberal opinion that believed that anything that the Wall Street Journal and the Reagan administration said about the Soviet Union was wrong, barbaric, and evil, and was designed to lead us into nuclear war, and therefore opposing their uh, arguments or whatever was itself an act of, um, you were saving the world by not letting their arguments stand. Mm -hmm. And now let's eerily move forward to 2020, right? The argument that the the, uh, virus was a lab leak or whatever is an act of war we're trying it's it's uh, trump trying to attack asia china we're 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 creating um you know we're creating uh, xenophobia uh everyone go down to chinatown and you know and and make out with chinese people so you can show that, that you don't you're not scared of you know uh you know of globalism i don't know what the hell it was and then of course uh, Trump says X, so you say Y. The Reagan administration says we have credible evidence that the Soviets are using chemical weapons in, you know, in in Southeast Asia, and you're like, well, anything they say has got to be a lie. So therefore, uh, we will accept any counter argument as being true because they are liars. And um, and while I think it's fair to say that the Trump administrations and Trumps him. Trump's himself his weakness for believing conspiracy theories of his own and for and for you know lying just as frequently as he told the truth uh, gave much more credibility to that to that idea than the Reagan administration did certainly in 1981 1982 83 that was not the case in the United States among liberals who believed that Reagan wanted a nuclear war there was a credible body of opinion on the American left that Reagan wished to ignite a nuclear war. Ronnie Duggar, a famous journalist of the time, wrote a book called On Reagan, which he said, Reagan is an evangelical Christian raised by a millenarian mother, and he wishes to cause a nuclear war to bring about the end times. This is an actual, I knew Ronnie Duggar. He was a sort of fun, drunken Texan lunatic, uh, but he was very well regarded, and he wrote this very well regarded book. And that was the argument at the time that Reagan wanted a nuclear war to destroy the Earth, to bring about the end times, to fulfill his mother's religious fanaticism, which a was not true about his mother, and b was not true about Reagan, and c was an act of psycho- of, of intellectual psychosis. But it was, but it was a perfectly legitimate opinion being expressed at the time. I mean, so that's why I say everything old is new again, including your back. And if your back stinks and you have trouble with your back, you know what? Let me just ask you: Can your office chair right now give you a massage while you're sitting at your desk? Mine can. Can your office chair warm your back on cold mornings or cool you off on hot days? Mine can. That's because I don't have any old no-name office chair. I have an X chair, and I love it. I've never had an office chair that looks or feels so amazing in my life. Honestly, it's so comfortable, I can sit for hours and never feel uncomfortable. The secret is that dynamic variable lumbar support, patented, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to your lower back, and now introducing Elemax, featuring cooling heat and massage therapy. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while sitting at your desk. X chair Elemax cooling delivers heat and massage technology directly to your core, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy. It even offers four different massage modes and fast-warming heat technology for therapy. I'm sorry, to your sore back. You won't believe the X-chair difference until you feel the X-chair difference for yourself. It's time to trade in your old uncomfortable office chair and trade up to an X-chair. X-chair prices are going up on July 11th for the first time in two years. Beat 
the price increase. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR to save $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. Uh, okay, so what else do we need to talk about before we go? I know there was some other, there was one other thing that I was like, oh, this is going to be a great show because we have so much to talk about. And now I've forgotten what it is. Oh, yes, I, now I know. Um, so, um, there was a writer, uh, there's a, there's an election expert named Michael McDonald. This goes back to the beginning of the show, but we'll sort of finish here. Michael McDonald, who like, uh, calculates election results and stuff. Uh, very, you know, one of those guys who tabulates everything at election time. Uh, here's his, uh, here, uh, here's his, uh, tweet storm. Observations from driving across the rural South, Florida, uh, Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, Arizona, or Arkansas, sorry. Few, if any, people are masked. And given the low vaccination rates in these areas, it seems like the Delta variant is a looming disaster. At one hotel I stayed at, a person was coughing away in the common area in the front during breakfast, and everyone was unmasked. I was masked, and I'm fully vaccinated, but I cleared out of that disaster ASAP. (laughs) Um, so let's get this straight. A person is coughing in America. (laughs) How dare he? (laughs) There's a person and he's coughing in America. That's. This also goes back to your social media segment because in a bygone age. Donald has 90,000 followers on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, He went to Twitter to say that he was in a hotel lobby and somebody was coughing. (laughs) In a different time and a better time, this would have been an unexpressed thought. Or if it was expressed, we would never have encountered it. But now we have to contend with it. It's right in your face. You didn't solicit this thought. It's just forced upon you. And you're expected to react in a particular way. Oh, I did. Well, I sure did. Maybe you're the kind who reacts negatively to that sort of thing. There's a stigma around that sort of thing. But also, you know, there's people who react positively. to That's an attaboy. You know, pat on the back for being so anxious that you essentially are socially responsible. This is the, you know, the the anxiety that we cultivate now. Um, And all of it is probably unhealthy. The the lack of curation of thought, of just thought that is now broadcast, is probably not very healthy for human beings as a tribal species, we're probably not supposed to encounter all this unedited thought. Well, there's Um, also, I'm sorry, there's a lot of snobbishness in his remarks too. As someone who grew up in Florida and has lots of friends throughout the rural South, the, the attaboy he gets, which Noah's right, is from other elite members of the uh, knowledge class. Uh, That's why he wrote it, but it should, and does at least for me, prompt a different reaction than than sort of laughing at him or, or being astonished. It's to say, I don't trust this guy's work. If he's supposed to be telling us what voters believe and his contempt for certain kinds of voters is is he feels perfectly comfortable expressing it on social media, then why why am I going to trust his judgment about why voters do what they do? But that's very sad, actually, because he provides a valuable service at election time. He's one of these guys who does uh, a tabulation of the ongoing vote after the election is over, and as people know now, as they never have, you know, uh, tens of millions of votes are often cast after election. Now it's like tens of millions of votes. Before it was two or three or four million votes, but it was he was the one you watched. His tables were the one you watched to see, say, a week or two weeks after the election, where numbers actually were ending up. Uh, after, you know, uh, as absentee ballots rolled in and, and stuff like that was happening. This is now something that everybody does. But he was a very hard data guy. And here he is just giving his, you know, impression. And it's too bad if he is ruining his credibility by tweeting out that he was in a hotel lobby where somebody coughed and he's vaccinated, and he's wearing a mask, and he's running out of the room <laughs> because this is a disaster there is someone among the 330 million people in this country who is coughing. 
How does he know that guy's not vaccinated? Also, the guy was coughing. I was on the street yesterday. I was walking with my wife. I was coughing. She said, you better buy a bottle of water. We stopped at a newsstand. I bought a bottle of water. I drank it. And then I stopped coughing. Michael McDonald would have run down the street screaming because I was coughing near him. I was going to say, think of the fear you might have been spreading among your fellow New Yorkers by by having an actual bodily function in both. Now, since all I do is, since all we do is attack the mainstream media, I just want to conclude this podcast with one thing I just want to say. I finished yesterday Jake Tapper's second novel, um, uh, which is called The Devil May Dance, which is a, which is a, a, a kind of a mystery thriller set in Hollywood in the early 1960s, a sequel to his first, The Hellfire Club. And I say this, I, I don't know Jake Tapper. I mean, I sort of, I've known of him for 20, he's not a friend of mine. I, I don't think I've ever even been on a show with him or anything like that. This book is so much fun. It's about Frank, it's about the Rat Pack and Scientology and old Hollywood. And there's a, there's a, a really horrifying scene set in Disneyland at night in 1962 and the making of the Manchurian Candidate. And it is so much fun going into the you're going into the uh you know fourth of july weekend or whatever um it is just it's just great great beach reading and i say this again jake tapper is there i have no social connection to jake tapper uh, whatsoever i'm just saying this because i really enjoyed it and with that we will come back to you tomorrow for a christina no i'm john pot keep the candle burning